If you are a student of liturgy or of the church year, you may be wondering how the chancel transformed into purple overnight here in the middle of November. There's a note in the bulletin explaining why we're pushing forward the Advent season this year at Kenilworth Union. For us here today, this Sunday is the threshold of Advent and we celebrate with the Advent color of purple. And to hear the word from the Lord, we consult the prophet Isaiah this morning, chapters 7 and 9, an ancient um, prophecy about the birth of the Messiah. In the days of Ahaz, king of Judah, King Retzin of Syria, went up to attack Jerusalem. And when the house of David heard that Syria was allied with Ephraim, the heart of the king and of his people shook like the trees of the forest and the wind. But the prophet Isaiah said to the king, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, has been broken as on the day of Midian for all the boots of the tramping warriors and every garment soaked in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. You can sneak important but difficult substances into someone's system by wrapping them in pretty packages. When I gave my dog a pill the size of a nickel, I would hide it in a piece of cheese the size of a quarter, and down it would go, and he hopefully looked for more. Remember those old orange-flavored aspirin the St. Joseph's Company used to make for us? In my last church, one of my members was a passionate opera aficionado. He was a big supporter of the Metropolitan Opera. He was about as evangelical about Puccini and Verdi as I was about Jesus. And so he tried to convert Kathy and me to the discipline and art of opera. And at first we were skeptical, but then he won us over. And we were so excited to learn about Wagner and Verdi. And we wanted to pass along this appreciation to our children. But they weren't having it. They just did not appreciate opera. Maybe I shouldn't have taken them at the outset to a full ring cycle. But maybe... <laughs> just kidding. So anyway, they didn't appreciate opera so much, so I took them to rent instead. 525,600 minutes went down like honey because rent is just a rockin' remake of Puccini's La Boheme, right? You can get Shakespeare painlessly from a beautiful film like Ten Things I Hate About You or Kiss Me Kate or West Side Story. You can get a hilarious dose of Homer's Odyssey from that funny film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And you can absorb a little Jane Austen by looking at that charming film, Clueless, from a few years ago. How do you get your theology? It is, after all, an important but difficult substance you should get into your system. Theology has a medicinal effect, but also, unfortunately, sometimes a medicinal taste. And so the Christian church knows this. The Christian church understands this and has for 1,600 years. And it's been sneaking some rather sophisticated theology into our Christian brains and hearts with Christmas carols. It might be the shrewdest and most successful propaganda campaign in the history of human thought. 
the Christian church colonized culture for Christ with Christmas carols. My daughter teaches fourth grade in Washington, D.C. She asked me what I was preaching about this morning, and I told her that I was starting a sermon series called Catechetical Christmas Carols. She said, catechetical, what in the world is that? Never heard that word before, and I give a vocabulary test every week. And I told her, well, catechism, of course, is a system of doctrine to teach Christians what they believe about Jesus and about God. And catechetical, of course, is its adjectival form. And she said, well, why don't you just call it Christmas carols with some theology in them? And I said, because then I wouldn't get to say catechetical over and over again. Six hard C's in three short words, catechetical Christmas carols. Now, my first example, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is not uh, really a Christmas carol at all. It fails on both counts. It's not Christmas, it's Advent. And it's not a carol, it's a hymn. Carol, by the way, is a French word which simply means a simple tune for a simple dance. And I hope I won't spoil your appreciation for our Christmas carols by telling you that many of those tunes began as drinking songs in pubs. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is not a carol, it's a hymn, and it's not Christmas, it's Advent. You don't hear this very much at Target and Macy's during the holiday season. So the text, as it says in your bulletin, is based on an ancient Vesper prayer recited during the week before Christmas in churches and monasteries since at least the 9th century. It has seven verses, each based on a title for the Messiah taken from the Hebrew Bible. And we've been singing this hymn for 700 years. And you know, of course, that the word Emmanuel means God with us. And it's taken from the prophet Isaiah, who lived and worked in the city of Jerusalem about seven or 800 years before Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem, when all of these gigantic superpowers were restless and looking for smaller nations to eat for breakfast. So the nation of Syria is threatening the walls of Jerusalem. And Isaiah tells us that the people of Jerusalem shook like trees in the forest before the wind. And into this grim situation, God sends the prophet Isaiah with a prophecy, with a promise of the Messiah. The Lord will give you a sign, and behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, and he will break the yoke of your impending slavery and snap the oppressor's spears like so much matchsticks. And all the boots of the tramping warriors and all those garments soaked in blood, will be used for fuel in the bonfire of celebration. Then 700 years later, this baby is born to a peasant woman in Bethlehem. And ever since, the Christian church has been certain that this baby is the definitive earthly manifestation of divinity itself. And the image the hymn uses is an ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here. And that's the sophisticated theological image the Christmas carol or Advent hymn has managed to sneak into our brains and hearts over these last 700 years. Jesus has come to pay the ransom we couldn't pay ourselves. Jesus has come to free his folk from foreign foes, 
from captivity, from slavery, from oppression, from alien domination. And at first hearing, it doesn't seem like a promising image for us 21st century Americans, does it? We are citizens of the world's only super... No one threatens us. We are not afraid of slavery or alien domination. But the American New Testament scholar Marcus Borg says that captivity has not just a political dimension, but also a a psycho-spiritual dimension. Every Advent, the Christmas story invites us to ask, to what am I in bondage? To what are we in bondage? Dr. Borg answers, to many things. Yes? To what are we in bondage? To many things. Literally. The richest pay, the highest job, the proudest position, the largest house, the fanciest friend, the sexiest mate, the buffest body, all of these good but evanescent treasures, yes? To what are we in bondage? Many things. Tomorrow night, a few of us will gather in the Culbertson room to find out what Charles Dickens can teach us about Christmas. Some have called a Christmas carol the fifth gospel. Yes? The fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Charles. Charles Dickens was buried in the poet's corner at Westminster Abbey when he died at the age of 58 in 1870. It was just a private, small, quiet, graveside service for his family and friends. And in a simple eulogy, the presiding priest called A Christmas Carol the most effective charity sermon that has ever been preached. And so the first ghost, Ebenezer Scrooge, encounters on that harrowing Christmas Eve is the ghost of his old business partner, Jacob Marley. And Jacob comes to Scrooge dragging heavy, ominous chains. You are fettered, says Scrooge. Tell me why. And Jacob says, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link, yard by yard. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Come, sweet little Jesus boy, to your weathered, creaky cattle shed and show us the prisons we forged for ourselves. Come with starlight and angel song to scorned and roughened shepherds and show us the emptiness of status and privilege. Show us in that weathered cattle shed that beauty is not built with bricks. To what are we in bondage? Many things. Or maybe for you it's not things you're in bondage to, but your own regretted past, some dubious choice you've made in the past, your own checkered history. Sometimes we're hobbled by the chains of a poor decision that has locked us up ever since. Some mistake we've made or choice we've regretted or substance we've abused, or life we've ruined, or lover we've betrayed, looms so large and shadows our life that there is no chance that we will ever be able to pay up a fine and recompense. Now I'm going to be praying for Miles Garrett of the Cleveland Browns this weekend. Great football player and generally good person who will have to wear for a long time the chains of regret over a single ugly impulsive decision. 
Do you ever feel constricted by the chains of some thoughtless lapse you can never undo? Is anybody here captive to regret? About 15 years ago, that national treasure, Ann Tyler, wrote a fine little novel called The Amateur Marriage. And I love that title because every marriage is amateur, right? In marriage, there are no professionals. There are no experts. There are just the two of us blundering blithely sometimes through the most precious relationships in our lives, right? The amateur marriage. In the amateur marriage, an aging man who's just lost his wife to Alzheimer's is unburdening himself to his daughter who herself is suffering a crumbling marriage after 30 years and they're sharing with each other the things they would have done differently. And the man uses his daughter as his confessor and he confesses, last night I was remembering that one time when she knocked over her milk. It had been a terrible day. And then I burned our supper and I had to start over from scratch. And I got all the food ready and I put it out on the table and I made it ready for both of us. I set the napkins, the silverware, and then she spilled her milk over everything. All over the food, the silverware, into her lap. And I got up in a huff and ran to the kitchen to retrieve a rag. And with sighs and complaining I tried to wipe it out of her lap and as I'm doing that she touches my hair and she says oh you are such a love and then his uh, this man says to his daughter I worry I'll go to hell when I die he says I worry I'll get to heaven and your mother will say you what are you doing here after you were so hard on me. And the man's daughter says, that is never going to happen. Never. I promise. You know how it's going to go? She says, there you are, climbing the stairs to heaven, and you look up and you're surprised that the gates are already open. And mom is standing just inside waiting for you. And she's not old and sick. She's the girl you first knew. And she'll be all excited. She'll be laughing and saying, you're here. You finally got here. Hurry up and come inside. And you'll say, don't I have to clear this with someone? Isn't there a test I have to pass? And she says, don't be silly. You've already passed the hardest test there is. And she'll take you by the hand and lead you through the gates. I promise. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Come, sweet little Jesus boy, to your weathered, roughened cattle shed and foreshadow the weathered, roughened wood of that cross on Calvary where all our sad failures are erased so thoroughly It's as if they never existed. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Come with your life of perfect simplicity and transparent divinity. Come with your beautiful life and give it up for us all. Wash it all away, all the regrets, all the mistakes, all the failures. Forgive the unforgivable, love the unlovable, reverse the irreversible, revoke the irrevocable. Come and show us 
that your grace is always larger and stronger than our greatest capacity to mar this earth and our lives. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.